0: Filled with inadequacy, he's filled with fear, but God, but God in this conversation is redirecting him. He's calling Moses to take his eyes off of himself and put his faith in the Lord to allow it to rest on him. That's what Moses is called to in our passage this morning, and that's what God calls us to do, to look to him and to walk by faith. And so we're going to read uh, Exodus chapter 4, and we're going to read the entirety of the chapter. So if you would, please follow along. Exodus 4, beginning in verse 1. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him, and put the words in his mouth, and I will put be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and I and you shall be as God to him, and take in your hand the staff with which you shall do the signs. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt and to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and put them on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, "'Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me.' So he let him alone. It was then that he, she said, "'A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision.' The Lord said to Aaron, "'Go into the wilderness to meet Moses.' So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak, and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the summer of 1986, um, the entire state of South Carolina was overcome by a very severe drought. Um, I'm not sure how many months... The drought actually entailed, but for 15 straight days, temperatures exceeded 100 degrees. There was no rain. There was no promise of rain. There was uh, just drought. There was just dryness. The land was becoming parched, and crops were failing, and animals that depended upon those crops were dying. People's livelihoods were at stake. The Chicago, Chicago Tribune was reporting on it and in an in interview with a state spokesman. The spokesman said that this was the worst drought in the history of the state. It was awful. It was horrible. And there was nothing that they could do. Something had to be done, but there was nothing that the state nor the people, there was nothing that could be done. And So one day, on the county courthouse steps in Lexington, South Carolina, a hundred people gathered together to do something. To pray. The AP picked this up, the Associated Press, and they sent a reporter to to go see what was going on and to report on it. And when the report was published, there was a picture, and in the picture, there's a picture of a young PCA pastor. It, it wasn't me. This was 1986. I was like eight. <laughs> but um, uh, it, it was it was. It was now an older PCA pastor, but at the time he was young and he was standing there in the picture with his head bowed in prayer, and in the crook of his arm was his Bible, and on the podium in front of him was hanging an umbrella. It was his umbrella. There had been drought, there had been no rain, there were dark clouds that had formed at times, but every time they thought they would release their moisture, they just blew away and the ground remained parched. And yet there he came with his umbrella, believing that as he asked with faith that God would send rain, that God would do it. The caption in the photo said, an umbrella, a symbol of rain. But we know better, don't we? See, that umbrella was more than a symbol of rain it was a symbol of faith it was a symbol of faith that that this pastor believed that despite what he had seen despite the parched ground and despite the hundred degree temperatures and despite the lack of rain and the the crops failing and the cattle dying despite all of his experiences he believed with great faith that as he asked the creator of the clouds and the sender of rain That rain would come. It's a symbol of faith. The Bible tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. You see, faith is an obedient disposition towards the God who is working and who we believe and we can trust will continue to work, not just today, but also tomorrow. Even when we're not sure how he will do it faith. That is what God is calling Moses to respond with in this passage. That Moses would not look upon his circumstances, he would not fixate on himself, but that he would look to God and walk with faith. Now in this dialogue that God has with Moses in chapters 3 and 4, God is calling Moses to go Go, I will be with you. Go to Egypt. And five times Moses gives objections as to why he's the wrong guy. How the person that God is speaking to, that that God's got it all wrong. That Moses doesn't have the gifts, that he's inadequate, that he's afraid. What God does to Moses, what he reveals to him is for Moses not to look upon his fears, but to replace his fears with faith in the God who calls him in the God who has revealed himself to him, that Moses is to walk with faith. And that's what we are to do. Faith in the God who provides. That's the first reason why we are to walk with faith, because of God's provision. We see it on display in this passage. Look at verse 10. Moses said to the Lord, God has said, go, but Moses says, oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. God says, go, and Moses looks at himself and he says, I can't say the words that you need me to say. Right? I'm not eloquent. So commentators have debated as to what's going on here. Some think that Moses had a stutter, and so some older translations call Moses a stutterer. That's kind of hard to say. You kind of stutter that out, don't you? He was a stutterer, or he wasn't eloquent, or we're we're not really sure. And so there's been lots of debate. In fact, there's an ancient Jewish interpretation, teaching. So this is extra biblical, right? But but there was an interpretation that that Moses did have a stutter, and the way that he got it was Pharaoh was testing Moses. When he was a child in Moses in Pharaoh's house, Pharaoh wasn't sure if Moses was Egyptian or if he was a Hebrew. And so Pharaoh, knowing that the Hebrews were smarter than the Egyptians, remember this is a Hebrew teaching, (laughs) Uh, put before Moses a piece of gold and a smoldering stick. And Pharaoh knew that if he was really Hebrew, if he was really Jewish, he would grab hold of the gold. But if he was Egyptian, he wasn't so smart, so he would touch the smoldering stick. And so he lays them before this, and the child, Moses, reaches for the gold. But as he's reaching, he discerns what, Moses, what Pharaoh thinks he will do. And so knowing that Pharaoh will think that he will take the gold, he tricks Pharaoh, and he pulls his hand back, and he reaches for the smoldering stick and burns his fingers and burns his tongue. And thus, Moses is a stutterer. <laughs> it's a fun story, right? It's interesting. It's full of Hebrew propaganda, right? But... <laughs> We have no reason to believe that is true, but, but what we do know is that there was something about Moses that gave him uncertainty about speaking. He wasn't sure if he could say the words that God wanted him to say. Maybe he was a stutterer, or maybe he had a speech impediment, or maybe he just wasn't convinced that he was equipped for what God had called him to do. Have y'all ever felt like that? Like maybe God's called you to do something, put you in a place and you don't feel equipped to do it. Maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, God, you've, you've placed me, you've plopped me right down, surrounded by all these people who have never heard of you and don't know you and need to hear the gospel, and I want to so badly, but I'm afraid to. I'm, I'm afraid to speak the truth, and, and I'm not convinced that I have the right words, that I will stumble over my words, and I'm going to open my mouth and say wrong things, and I won't be able to answer all their questions. God, send someone else. Maybe you're a parent, and you're sitting there, and you're thinking, I, I want to love my child. I want to walk with them through life. I want to direct them to the Lord. I want to be there for them, but, but I look at their world, and I don't understand it. It feels like they're living on another planet, and every time I try to relate to them, I open my mouth, and I keep sticking my foot further and further into it. God, I'm just not good at this, what you have called me to or maybe you're sitting there and you're looking around this room and you're going if, if only I had his gifts or if only I was like her there, I, I see clearly how God uses them but, but me I'm not so sure have you ever thought that let me tell y'all you if, if you're not thinking it right now I'm sure you've thought it before and if you haven't thought it before, then maybe you're not very self-reflective, but you will, you will think it in the future. Right? I mean, that's what Moses is saying, right? They won't believe me. They won't listen to me. I'm not eloquent. I am not equipped for what you have called me to do. And how does God respond? Look at verses 11 and 12. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, The Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Did you hear that? Did you hear what God didn't say? He didn't say, Moses, you're just too hard on yourself. You're a great speaker, Moses. You're going to do awesome. Like, that's not what he said. He didn't prop up Moses. What did he say? I go with you. He said, I will be with your mouth. I will teach you what to say. God is taking Moses and he is turning his eyes away from Moses' inadequacies and his inabilities and his fears and he's saying, put your faith in me. That's what God is doing. He's redirecting him. Don't worry about your stutter or your eloquence. I will provide what you need. It's not Moses' ability. It's not our ability. It's God's. I have a friend who's a pastor in Atlanta who likes to say that God never gives you a calling without giving you what you need to sustain that calling. God's not calling you to proclaim the gospel. He's not calling you to serve the church if he's not going to give you those things. In fact, God gives us the very things that we need. He provides for us what we need to fulfill the calling he has given us. He provides for it. See, God is challenging Moses' fears and his concerns by calling Moses to put his faith in the God who provides. But it's not just the God who provides. That's not the only thing God directs him to. God directs him to his power as well. We see God's power on display in this passage. We see it in two miraculous signs and then the promise of a third. It begins in verse 3 with the staff and the snake. What's that in your hand? It's a staff. Throw it on the ground, and it turns into a snake, and Moses runs. And i got to be honest with you, I don't really blame him, (laughs) right? It's like the only thing in that moment is I hope I'm faster than Moses, (laughs) right? (laughs) Right? So he goes fleeing from the snake. But what does God say? Go and grab the snake by the tail. Okay, now that's interesting. Now, I don't know a lot about snakes because I've run from them, but I can tell you this. You don't grab a snake by the tail because if you grab it by its tail, what is it going to do to you? it's going to bite you. That's right. It's going to strike you, right? Because it can still turn, right? And get at you. You grab it by the head. But God says, Moses, grab it by the tail. And so I imagine that Moses was probably going over a little tentatively, right? Like, uh, and he grabs it by the tail and it's a staff. And he tells him, put your hand in your cloak and now it's leprous and put it back in. And now it's clean. And if that's not enough for you, Moses, when you get to the Nile, grab some water and pour it on the ground, and it's going to be blood. God's showing his power, his power over the created order. But it's also power over, over uh, Egypt. Now, we're going to get into this even more when we get to the portion of Exodus that talks about the plagues. Uh, actually, they're not plagues. They're signs. So we'll talk about that more. So that's just wetting your appetite. You know, come back, and I forget how many weeks. But... Um, but uh, but this is a reflection of God's power over Egypt as well. Because you see, the snake in Egypt was actually an animal that was, was uh, thought of as, as a symbol of wisdom and of healing. Actually, a source of wisdom and healing. And it was, uh, it was almost venerated, the snake. It, it became a symbol of power. And so throughout Egypt, there were paintings and pictures they put on shields and put it on walls. And in fact, Pharaoh's own crown had a snake sculpted into with it pointing away from pharaoh at its enemies it was a symbol of power and yet god says grab that thing by the tail i have power over the power in egypt think about the nile the nile was the source the source of sustenance for egypt if the nile dries up if it goes away the people die and so the, the Nile in this pantheistic nation was actually venerated. It was worshipped. In ancient Egyptian language, the word, the Egyptian word for the Nile was the same word that was used for the Nile god. This god that nourished the land and provided for Egypt. But, but what is it that God says? Take a little bit of water and it will become blood. Blood. that i have authority and power even in this place where this god is supposed to dwell and supposed to reign that his power is nothing in compared to my power the symbol of judgment that he would bring upon egypt that he would take their very source of life and he would turn it into blood god is showing that he is powerful over the created order, he's powerful over Egypt, and he's doing it to convince Moses, to show Moses that he can put his faith in him. That there is nothing that is greater than God. God is showing Moses that despite his feelings of powerlessness, he goes with the almighty power of the Lord. And it's not just for Moses, but it's also for the Israelites. Right? Look how the chapter began. Moses said, what if they don't believe me? And in verse 13, please send someone else, right? He's basically saying, I can't make Israel believe. I don't have the power to do that. So God gives him these signs. In verse 5, he says he's giving him this sign that they may believe. And in verse 8, if they will not believe you, they may believe the latter sign. And if they don't believe the latter sign, then do the trick with the Nile. (laughs) Then they will believe. They will see that I am more powerful than anything in Egypt that I am the sovereign power over this world, that that you can follow me, that you can have faith in me, that he is the one that Moses and Israel and we are to put our faith in because God shows his power. But God also shows that he is a father. He shows his parenthood in this passage. I needed another P. His parenthood. He is a parent to Israel. Okay, so Moses finally is convinced he's going to go. No more objections. So he starts going, he starts moving towards Egypt, and he gets to this little lodge, and we have this strange little occurrence that happens in verses 24 through 26. Now, I bet, I bet some of you thought, you know, Penny's preaching the entire chapter, chapter 4, he can't talk about everything, so surely he's going to skip the part about Zipporah, right? Because who wants to talk about that? Uh, but we're not. We're going right there. Because it's actually very significant. It reflects Moses' disposition to God. So let's read, beginning in verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it, and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. That is, God let him alone. He let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision all right like what is going on here right um this seems kind of odd like why is it right here why didn't this happen a long time ago and that is actually the question we should be asking like why wasn't Gershom already circumcised and the fact that he wasn't circumcised reflects Moses's disposition to the Lord so um one question we should ask is who is the him that God is seeking to put to death there's a lot of debate whether it was Moses or Gershom. Um, commentaries, I don't know if they're evenly divided, but, but there's uh, people on both sides. I tend to think that God was going to put Gershom to death, uh, if you're wanting to know my opinion, and that's because of the, the fact of circumcision to come. But regardless, God is about to discipline one of his people. So why? Well, you guys remember the Abrahamic covenant. In Genesis chapter 12, 15 and 17, God makes a promise to Israel and he says, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, and through you, the nations will be blessed. You will go into the land, you will have it, it will be a beachhead, so that all the nations will see the glory of the Lord, and they will come to God. And when God made this promise to Abraham, he said, I'm going to give you a sign, right? Covenants come with signs, right? Sign of baptism, the sign of the Lord's Supper. These are signs of the new covenant, but But this is a sign to you. It is circumcision. And so every Jewish boy whose parents were faithful would circumcise them from the time of Abraham going forward. This is a sign to you, a sign to remind you of God's promise to bless Abraham and bless the nations through Israel, but also a sign of Israel's faithfulness and fidelity to God. That they are his people. And that is the problem. You see, Moses, by not circumcising his son, is actually disassociating not only with God's people, but with God. He is disobeying God's commandment to pass on the covenant sign to his son. He's disassociating with God, and he is rejecting his covenant. And that is why God is ready to put his son to death. He's living as though he is not a son. So it's kind of like in the movie Braveheart. So maybe some of you all have seen Braveheart, uh, this epic movie, right? I mean, it truly is epic, right? This wonderful story about William Wallace, who's the Scottish patriot, who's going to defeat the evil English and, and rid Scotland of England and win for them their freedom, right? And so Wallace, we, we know some of it's historical, but a lot of it's... Uh, um, Based on historical fact, right? Um, but, but anyway, the story is, is wonderful nonetheless. Wallace, he has uh, got his ragtag band of army. They're going and they're fighting against uh, England and they're winning these battles. But at some point, they, they're on the run. And Wallace needs extra help. And so he turns to the Scottish nobility. There's one, Robert the Bruce, Right? Like you he, he like Robert. He, he's got this romantic heart. He wants Scotland to be free. He wants to go charging with William. And so he pledges, I will be with you at Falkirk. When you go against England, I will be with you. And so the battle is ready to begin. And the, the armies are lined up opposed to one another. And William looks, and Robert is nowhere to be found. Right? We're, we're wondering, did he break his promise? But, but as we're watching the movie for the first time, we're, we're thinking, no, he, he's going to come riding in. Scotland will be ready to be thrown down, and he'll come with the cavalry and swoop in, defeat the English, and Scotland will win. But the battle ensues. And Robert never arrives. He's broken his promise, but even worse than that, See, William goes riding off, chasing after the king of England. And one of his entourage, a lone rider with a helmet on, he turns away from the entourage to defend the king of England, and he dismounts William from his horse, and they begin to fight hand-to-hand combat. And William rips off his helmet to find its Robert. He had not only broken his promise but he betrayed William. In the picture on William's face, you feel his pain, his sadness, the hurt that he's experiencing in this betrayal. That Robert had not just ignored his promise, but he, he no longer wore Scottish clothes, and he, he turned and betrayed William, and he fought for England. It was as though he wasn't even Scottish anymore. And that's what Moses is doing. He's not living as a son. He's not living as a true Israelite. He is disassociating himself with God and his promise. He is removing himself because he is unwilling to participate in God's people by giving this sign to his son. He's not living as a son of God, and yet that is exactly who he is. That's what he's to declare to Pharaoh. Did you hear that in verse 22? In verse 22, Moses is to say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. We're, we'll get into that last clause later when we come to that portion of Exodus. But for now, did you hear what God says about Israel? You are my child, my son. In my study, I, as far as I can tell, this is the first time in the entire Bible that Israel is declared by God to be his children. that's who they are. That makes Moses' lack of giving the sign to his son even more terrible, that he has just heard that he is one of God's children, one of his firstborn sons. That's what Israel was to be, the firstborn son. In the ancient world, the firstborn was particularly favored. They would get the inheritance. They would represent their parents, and that's what Israel was supposed to do. Think about how shocking that would have been. I mean, it would have been shocking to Pharaoh, no doubt. But it would have been shocking to Israel. They don't look like sons right now, do they? They're in slavery. They're treated inhumanely. They are the lowest in Egyptian society. And yet, in God's eyes, they are treasured. They are precious. He says, they are my sons. See, the children of God, that's who Israel is to be. And that's what God has called Moses to represent. That they would live by faith as God's children. Just as Moses would lead and deliver God's children from slavery, from bondage. Years later, that's exactly what Jesus would do. He would deliver God's children from the bondage of our sin, by taking our sin upon himself and having the power to rise from the dead and defeat it so that God's children would hear, you are my son, you are my daughter. That's what First John chapter 3 tells us. John writes, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. That's who you are. That if your trust and your faith is in the Christ who has died and resurrected, then God calls you my. He says you are my son, my daughter. You see, this is not just contained to Old Testament Israel, but when Jesus came, the Abrahamic promise was being fulfilled, that the Gentiles, the nations would be brought in. And so it's not just for believing Israel any longer, but it is for every tribe and tongue and nation and people and every race to be brought in and to be called the people of God. Sons and daughters of the king. Inheritors, heirs of the promise of God. That's what Romans 8 tells us. That the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. That we can have assurance that because of Christ and because of the giving of his Spirit, that that is who you are. Inheritors of the promise. Sons and daughters of the King that's why we're to walk by faith. That's why we're to walk by faith, because we're not orphans. We're not left alone. But we are his. He draws us into his family. God, the one who has provided all that we need as, as we walk with him. God, the one who's powerful enough to defeat the most powerful nation in the world. The one who's powerful enough to defeat death itself. God, the one who calls us his children. He is our father and he parents us, calling us to obedience, calling us to walk, to follow him with trust and obedience, to follow him by faith today and tomorrow and for all our days. That is what he is doing. The God who has provided and has powerfully worked and has called himself our father. We are called to walk with him in faith. Amen. Father, we ask that you would do that in our hearts, that you would stir us, that you would convince us and affirm in our spirits, confirm to our spirits by your spirit that we are your children, that your promise is true. It was true yesterday and it is today and it is tomorrow that because of Christ, we are your people. And so teach us to walk by faith to turn our eyes from ourselves and to fixate them on you, the God who has called us, the God who has provided, the God who has powerfully worked, and the God who calls us his Father. God, we ask that you would do this. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said together,